is uh, 6.34, you have like the call meeting with HTTPC to order. Yeah. Agenda number two, the consideration of the meeting minutes from uh, the July 20th meeting. Are there any edits or corrections to the minutes? May I have a motion to approve the July 20th? So moved. Agreed, thank you. So All in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Motion passed. Agenda number three, public comments of uh, items not on the agenda. Are there any public comments for items not on the agenda? Thank you. If I could just interrupt really quick, I didn't turn your mics on, so you guys will have to press and hold to get it to go. <laughs> I know. I only had like 90 then, minutes uh, to prepare. Agenda and then item number the four, uh, the Iowa City Housing <laughs> and Authority Overview at the May uh, uh, meeting. Uh, Commissioner four, uh, the Iowa requested additional information as well as uh, potentially an update on the uh, wait list uh, from Iowa City Housing Authority. Uh, so we have the opportunity well to hear some updates from staff as well as from Ms. Carter that comes to us from the Iowa City Housing Authority. As well as from Ms. Carter. Uh, that comes to us from the Iowa City Housing Authority. I thought it would be beneficial for the commission to hear all about all what goes on. happens over there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have any specific questions? No, okay. Well, okay. Uh, a, a general overview. Oh, we have 1,575 Housing Choice Voucher Program vouchers, um, otherwise known as Section 8. Those 1,575, uh, a significant percentage, in fact, the highest percentage in the state of Iowa are specialty vouchers earmarked for populations with higher barriers, uh, people with disabilities, people experiencing homelessness, veterans experiencing homelessness. Um, and so we administer those largely in conjunction with Shelter House and the coordinated entry system. And then the rest of our vouchers we administer within the housing authority. We also have a public housing program in which we own and manage the units and rent is capped at 30% of our tenants income. We have 86 public housing units in Iowa City and we also in the housing authority manage 16 affordable units uh, that they aren't funded through the public and Indian housing for public housing or specifically HCVP, but we do keep those affordable through partnerships um, with the housing fellowship and some IFA funding. Can I ask a question before I forget? And I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I have a bad memory. So um, you said 30% of the client's income is that, is that, um, without any deductions, just plain 30% of, of what their gross income is? Right, it's adjusted gross income, so there are deductions. So for example, if somebody has medical expenses that are more than 3% of their annual income, a lot of this gets into like really specific HUD required things like the medical expenses have to be more than 3% of someone's annual income to be deducted. Uh, if somebody is elderly or disabled, the cost of their Medicare or Medicaid insurance is deducted, their child care deductions. So there, there are a myriad of different deductions. Yeah. And then right after that, you said something I thought was interesting. It was um, 
not affiliated with Section 8, but um, of the affordable housing that the city owns. Mm -hmm. Is there are there guidelines to what affordability means in terms of like is there a, a range for rent? Yep. Yeah, we have to stay under uh, fair market rent. So the payment standards used in the Housing Authority for HCVP and public housing are uh, based on fair market rent, some percentage of fair market rent, we have to be within a range. So fair market rent for those as well. Yeah, fair market rent is very high. It's more than some people make with their social security disability and SSI, so. That's true, so this is, yep, the cost of housing is high here. Yes. So HUD reflects that with the fair market rent, so we're able to assist people who otherwise wouldn't be able to yeah, afford a rental here. Oh, so there's other assistance available. So those units, we keep them at fair market rent. Yes. And we accept vouchers in those units, so some of the tenants have vouchers in those units, and uh, some of them just pay fair market rent on their own, like the rest of, essentially like the rest of the city. So that is helpful. So, because a lot of units go above what the fair market rent is for for just people who are not getting assistance so absolutely that is helpful thank you yeah those are the, the broad overview of the two large programs we also have a family self-sufficiency program which helps um, clients in our section 8 program build an escrow savings account we have a lot of success in that program of uh, people exiting the program to home ownership um, which ties into we have a small homeownership program that we can use Section 8 vouchers for homeownership payment. Uh, we have people starting businesses and going off assistance completely with FSS, family self-sufficiency money. We have um, 164 clients in that program right now. Those are broad strokes of what the Housing Authority does. And I know that I had heard you had wanted to hear a little bit about our wait list. Uh, we just completed um, updating our waiting list. A year ago, we had a waiting list of 29,000 people for our Housing Choice Voucher Program. Uh, we updated, sent letters to everybody on the list and made sure they were still interested in the program, they hadn't moved, and um, were still eligible or basic eligibility. And after that update letter process, we now have, uh, I wrote it down as of this morning, 8,825 people on the waiting list. So it's still a really significant waiting list. Is uh, that 8,000 heads of households or? 8,000 households. Oh, households, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, um, it's still really significant. Right now we are serving people who applied in July of 2019, so over a four year wait list. Um, and I don't see that need decreasing anytime soon. We're on the waiting list for um, Housing Choice Voucher. In public housing, we haven't done an update letter in in quite some time. So right now that waiting list has almost 13,000 people on it. Um, what letter is that? We just sent an update letter saying, you know, are you still wanting to be on the waiting okay. list? Are you still eligible? Rachel, can I as far as coming off the wait list or getting on the wait list or being bumped up the wait list, do, do people have existing vouchers or families have existing vouchers from outside of our jurisdiction, whether it's Lynn County or out of state or Des Moines, do they have 
preference on the wait list versus new applications of families within within John's or with, sure. within your sure. realm? Yeah, they don't. Um, two part answer. Part one is that if you have a voucher somewhere else, you can port it to our housing authority. Uh, federally, it's required that a housing authority accepts any ported voucher, so you can take a voucher from anywhere and port it anywhere in the United States. So if they wanted to come here and they had a voucher, they could come here. It's up to us whether we absorb that voucher or we build other housing authority. Um, so that's the part that's up to our discretion. But if they what want to. What does that mean to absorb the voucher? We would just give them one of ours instead of sending yeah, a okay. bill to the other housing authority every month. Do, but do but they how does it, where, where do they end up on a wait? I mean, so if somebody ports it in, that's the language you use from a, a different county or different state. Yeah. Do, how do, where's their placement on the list? They're not on the waiting list. They have a voucher in hand. I see. Okay. Yeah. So the waiting list is for people to get vouchers. Yep. Okay. And with on our, our waiting list, we have preference categories. Um, preference category number one is for anybody fleeing a federally declared disaster area. We almost never have anybody on that portion of the waiting list. It's very rare. Um, and then preference category two, which is where we pull all of our applicants from, our entire client pool, is anybody who's elderly, disabled, or has minor children living or working within our jurisdiction. So Johnson, Iowa, Washington counties, north of Highway 92 in Washington. So, what's the average wait, um, or do you even know that? Right now, we're serving people who applied in July of 2019. Mm -hmm. So right now, it's just over four years. Okay. It's getting longer. How does how does ICHA generally handle those outside transfers, those ports? Uh, we generally absorb them because when you're billing, you're putting your federal compliance in the hands of another housing authority. And what our experience has been, I tried, I tried billing for a couple months because I was curious because if I could have, if I could have a voucher from another community, I would take that. Mm -hmm. And if they don't send you the federal, um, the HUD paperwork you have to submit on a monthly basis. Then, you're, then we're out of compliance. So we get about, um, well, so far this year, we've gotten 17 port requests. So we don't get a lot, but we get some. Are you required to accept them and or bill? We're required to give them a voucher here in the Iowa City Housing Authority jurisdiction. And then whether we pay for it directly and get our money from HUD directly or build other housing authority, that part's up to us. So if, if we are porting them and, and taking them in-house, does that, does that, I mean, how does that work on a finite amount of vouchers we have? Right, so that's does the- Does that kick somebody else off the program or? It doesn't kick somebody off the program. We would only absorb them if we had an open voucher. So if we were at the point where we had no open vouchers, we would build just for the sake of um, keeping all the vouchers that we have. But we have, um, about 200 vouchers a year turnover, whether somebody moves or is no longer eligible because, you know, in the best case scenario, they're making enough money where they no longer need the assistance or, you know, people who pass away. But in that case, the ported one would, would take precedence over anything that's on the wait list. Right. It's not a wait list voucher. Yep. Probably assuming that they've gone through the 
waitlist in another community. So 2019 to 2023, three to four years, they could sit on a wait list. Mm -hmm. what, what are their options in, in that interim of time? What are, how are they, can't afford housing. If they're waiting for a voucher. That means they're waiting for low-income housing. So what do they do in the meantime, three to four years for a family to wait? Right. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Uh, and there's not a great answer to that. We, do we know? I mean, how? I can tell you what I did when I was on the wait list. Mm -hmm. um, the only groceries that I, that I got for myself were beans and rice. And I ate beans and rice for, me, for almost every meal for a couple of years. Well, that gets me that I'm looking for. I guess what I'm looking for is that for our nonprofits, transitional housing, homeless shelters, uh, um, rapid rehousing, um, uh, and and you know the other kinds of things like the food pantries and such that are are providing some some. I wasn't a, literate with a, all the social a, service agencies sure. that were in this. In oh, the absolutely. City. So that could have been helpful, but I I, I my entire at the, almost my entire almost um, social security check went to rent. And that's unfortunate in, in, at least I'll speak to food because there is, uh, we had a hunger project, um, hunger action task force, um, I want to say seven or eight years ago now. And there's a website in Johnson County with literally everything that you can find that's, you know, related to getting a meal or getting um, grocery assistance. So, so, I mean, I think we've done a good job at, you know, but I, I guess, but that's so, yes, that got me closer to the answer I'm looking for. I guess our, our nonprofits, that's our, they're filling a gap for us then, um, which to me signifies that, um, yeah, just a little bit of a tangent. I'm not gonna, I promise I'm not gonna get a soapbox. But I do think that we should take a look at funding priorities and you know, making sure that we have enough people, or we have enough um, support going to the kinds of agencies that are providing that interim housing assistance. Because four years is a long time for a family to survive if they can't afford the basic, you know, shelter, so. Uh, yeah, I'll, and I'll just say um, what would have been very helpful to me because I have, I had never um, participated in, in any financial assistance programs before for any reason. And so it was foreign territory for me. So in, so in, um, so in addition to just being very, I don't know, just not really understanding anything, it was difficult for me to access information on where to go. And so I've always thought it would be nice if there were one, one that was very well known that had information for everything and had and had it current and and had it complete and um i'm not sure that anyone's doing that but that would be very helpful well i think there there is that kind of assistance but i just will say that um nonprofits uh and the services and the benefits that people can get is um you know, it, 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 you almost need a yellow pages directory for any of it. Mm -hmm. But in Johnson County, I do think we could 
um, do a good idea, and I think there are some places, and there's enough um, partnership and cooperation among the agencies that they do um, send you different places. Um, I, I did have a question along a different line, and this had something to do with um, 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 a matter that we dealt with right after, shortly after I became a commissioner, and that was the vacation um, policy of, or the vacancy policy of leaving your home for more than four weeks. And I think it was up to two months, is it now? Okay. And I kind of, can you speak to that in terms of how um, well that's gone, if it's caused a lot of vacancies, if there have been a, um, because there was a concern, uh, I recall, um, not so much that came out in the commission meeting, but in people speaking to me, said people out in the community that um, housing should, we should be utilizing our housing, or only people should get um, public vouchers who utilize it all the time, and that it would increase the vacancy, people wouldn't be there. And I just wondered, you know, what you've seen in the year and a half, or t almost two years probably since that happened. Sure. So the policy change so they can be absent absent from a unit for up to 60 days without prior approval. So what's happened is we're not hearing about it when they're gone for that long. So we really don't have a lot of uh, interaction about it at all now. I think that okay. I've been at the Housing Authority for a year and it's come up one time since then that someone's been absent for longer than that. Okay. So um, we haven't we haven't had any complaints from landlords. We haven't had we, one time in the last year has someone exceeded okay. that 60 days. Yeah. Have you noticed, are you able to track in regards to what, uh, what uh, Becky was saying, any kind of increase in the wait list since that policy was enacted? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't think that um, it's been pretty steady in um, it's been growing essentially since 2020, and we can all make the presumption of what happened in 2020 that made that the case. Um, and that, that was uh, enacted at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. So I don't think that the travel policy or absent from unit policy had any effect on the wait list. I was happy to hear you say that you hadn't had complaints from landlords, especially of people not paying their rent while they're gone. No, yeah, we haven't had that at all, thankfully. That's good. And yeah. I will say also, just in reference back to the idea of like a, a yellow book of sorts for services, Johnson County Social Services yeah. does their guidebook right. that's pretty phenomenal. And they, they, they have a, a staff person dedicated to keeping yeah. that updated. That used to be something that Linda Severson with the city did some years ago, and then Lynette Jacoby took it over. And Lynette Jacoby also put together, because she headed the task force for the hunger task force, she also has an extensive list of um, food, um, um, grocery, um, meal sites. Where does the person get these lists? Uh, Johnson County Social Services. And I think they've increased their staff too, so which they needed to do also. So I mean, it's there's on never their, enough It's staff. on their website also, mm -hmm. the Johnson County website yeah. has it. We actually have it printed off in our office for housing resources also. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I will say also wait list relevant, I thought it was um, interesting to know in the last 12 months pulling from our wait list, 38% of the people we pulled from our, our wait list to give vouchers to were literally homeless at the time we pulled them from that list. So at Shelter House, at DVIP, sleeping or living someplace not meant for human habitation. 
so if in the last year, so about a quarter of our list that we pulled, 38% were homeless, that is probably a pretty good reflection of what the rest of the list looks like. So right now we have a little bit more than 8,800 households that need housing. We do, and those preference categories I was talking about, our P2 preference category, which is anybody elderly, disabled, or with minor children working or living in our jurisdiction, that portion of the list is 1,126. So the remainder of it um, are um, our P3s, which is 92 people, I believe, this morning, are people who are not elderly, disabled, nor with children in our jurisdiction. And then our P4, our preference categories four, five, and six, are all people outside of our jurisdiction. Okay. Do we have any idea, because I'm assuming that the people that would fall, that would, would fall into that third category would just never apply, because they would assume that they would never get it. Do we have any information on how many people there are that uh, aren't applying, but still you know, like don't have affordable housing? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably defer to Erica Rihanna on that. About, uh, I mean, I don't, we don't specifically have that data, but we do have data on cost burden in our county, and that's that's pretty high, like cost burden from renters. Um, so you can take a look at that and kind of just discern how much, what the impact that has, I guess. Where is it? Um, we have it in our housing study, or, or what's the name of that? <laughs> housing study update it's in a couple of plans we just redid our city website and there's a tab under community development that says other plans and documents now so there's several housing studies under there that would have that information i can't think of which one you're specifically referring to so a lot of like people a housing needs analysis for the area that we have up on our website that is probably a year or two recent we do have uh, people apply in that category because as they so say you're 59 right now, not disabled and don't have minor children, but they'll apply because three years from now, they'll be 62, so then they'll be. So we do have some applications. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, you mentioned that the wait list from the last time you had updated, it was something like 29,000 and now it's something like between eight and 9,000. Do you guys have any sense of how all of those people have transitioned off of that wait list? Do we have any sense of is it because so many people moved away or if they aren't eligible or if they've just dropped off the wait list for some other Because I'm thinking of those two numbers and I'm like, that's like 29,000 people that for some reason or another aren't, aren't in need anymore or aren't in our community anymore or something right. else has made them leave that wait list. Yeah. So the vast majority of those, first I'll say, in our, in our P2, our preference category two, where we pull people for our programming, um, that was at 1,900. We lost about 800 people on that list. Uh, and that's after two letters and an email, if we had it on there. And it's all been due to non-response. So um, some of them we did get responses that they had passed away in that P2 category and uh, some of it is they didn't respond to the mail. So either they moved or they're just not interested and didn't respond to either letter. So we don't have a great gauge on it. In those preference categories that we've never been able to pull from, uh, the P4s and P5s, um, largely 
outside, I mean all outside of our community, many outside of our state. Um, a lot of those came back to turn male, they aren't living there anymore. I would say three-fourths of the ones that were removed uh, came back as undeliverable. Yeah. I have a question about, uh, well, it's always boggled my mind just a little bit on how HUD has, um, oh, I forget the name of what I'm trying to think of, how, um, how they calculate um, the amount of assistance that, that people are able to receive. And I'm wondering if, if um, folks, for instance, are in Washington County, north of Highway 92, is it calculated the same way for them as it is, say, for somebody in Iowa City or somebody in Lone Tree? So the method to calculate their adjusted gross income is the same anywhere in the United States. Their income limits, like the area median income that qualifies somebody for the programming is different in different counties. So in Washington County, it's lower than in Johnson County. So the thresholds uh, at which you're eligible for the programming is different. And then the fair market rent or our payment standards is different in different communities. So while the, the method to calculate adjusted gross income is the same everywhere, those rent amounts and the income limits are different, if that makes sense. For example, you can be, for example, you could theoretically be not eligible in Washington County, move to Johnson County and become eligible because of higher income, yep. higher income in the area, higher cost of living in the area. Yep. Yeah. Um, fraud. I mean, obviously, throughout the, I mean, I know, because we've worked together a long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it happens occasionally. You find people who have been, are hiding income, are on the program, shouldn't be, um, have, you know, other sources of income coming in that, that aren't being. Do you guys do that investigation internally, or is, like, Carmen DiPietro coming from Division of Appeals? Does the state come and investigate those? They can. Uh, it, historically, the Housing Authority has utilized them to investigate those. Um, it depends on how much of the fraud we're looking at. We utilize a federal system, HUD mandates, we utilize this federal system to verify income. So if it's earned income, we will see it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's going to show up on that. If they're using their Social Security number, we'll right. know about it. Um, and there are, of course, instances of earned income that may be cash that we don't see on that. So uh, in the past, the Housing Authority had, has utilized um, Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals to do those. We haven't had one of those in quite some time, thankfully, but um, I probably, I hope I didn't just jinx myself. No, right, yeah. I mean, do you see that one, I mean, do you see that happening one out of every 5,000 people, 2,000 people, 10, like what's the ratio of, I mean, we're not seeing it as a rampant issue no. in our, I mean, I know it can be a rampant issue in other communities, but we're not seeing that here is the question. We're not. Okay. Um, we enter between five and 10 new repayment agreements when somebody has either not reported income or misreported income. Um, they're entitled federally to enter into a repayment agreement to repay the additional rent that we paid on their behalf. And we, five to 10 a month, 
and it's usually less than $500. Never say never. There are ones that are larger or, you know, it went on for longer before we caught it. Um, so it happens that we have ones that are, you know, $1,000, $2,000. It happens. Um, so do, is it, do you catch them mostly because other people turn them in? No. Um, how do, how do yeah. you find out, say, if somebody's getting cash under the table for something? So cash under the table is one that often goes unnoticed for quite some time because we can't get them through a, a federal like income reporting system. Um, a lot of times, honestly, they end up reporting it and say, oh, I've had this job, you know, I've been doing this since uh, whenever, and then we have to pull the string, essentially, and see what comes out. Sometimes they find out from the landlord. Sometimes because sometimes we have people who apply who report that income to us. And of course, when we start filling out the RFTA paperwork and we have communications with the agents and say, well, they're telling us they make 1300 a month. And I might have Robin or Carrie say, well, I, as far as I know, they only make 300 a month. Ah. Um, sometimes that happens as well. Um, and like usually that all that does is affect what the tenant portion is versus what the HCV portion is, but well, but yeah, sometimes I'm glad to that hear happens. It doesn't happen a lot. That's yeah. Uh, for the most part, you know. Also, last year, uh, right at right under sixty percent of uh, the clients on our HCVP are elderly or disabled. They're not working jobs. They're relying on fixed incomes of pensions and Social Security and VA benefits. And um, those are all verified through our federal verification system. You mentioned earning. So do you guys just base off our earned income? No. Or is Social Security included or any of Social those? Okay. Included, How about yeah. child support? Child support is included. Is considered an actual income even though it's not a guarantee income? Yep. Interesting. Not my decisions. Federal government. No, I know. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's been touched on, too. And, 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 Rachel was nice enough to come to our apartment association meeting a couple months ago and speak as our monthly lunch and learn speaker. And, and we discussed there that um, the one thing we, we see and we're always asking, which is, you know, how does ICHA find a way to get our limits higher when I think federally HUD looks at Iowa and says, oh, well, your guys' average rent is 400 for a two bedroom. and Obviously, that is not the fact in Iowa City, Ames, and Cedar Falls that, that uh, you know. Um, right. Well, I mean, you can still find a, you can still find a $400 apartment in Kyoto, but yes. Um, well, yeah, but do you want to live in Kyoto? Um, There's the rub. But how, can you explain just how that process works? Because you guys have been able to increase um, recently the, the, those levels, and, and it has been a boon, I know, for a lot of the four and five bedroom families uh, that we've been able to help in the last six months that we wouldn't have been able to help before. Yep. Uh, it's nice to hear that, because that was our intention, certainly. Um, HUD sets the fair market rent, so it's this even number of based on, I think it's American Community Survey data, that they decide this is what the rent in your community costs. This is what fair rent is in your community. And then housing authorities have the choice to go between 90% to 110% of that fair market rent. And 
uh, HUD has some calculation that I don't think anybody knows, maybe including HUD, about how we get funded between that 90 and 110%. However, uh, we are still at a point where they're funding us for what we're spending out, so we'll accept it. And so we moved up our payment standard. So the fair market rent, I don't have anything to do with, we can't control. But that payment standard, um, what we were seeing is those three, fours, fives, very difficult to find a house to lease up in. Um, so we increased that payment standard. It had been at 93%, um, and we increased it pretty significantly to, it's a, I think, 108%. It gave us a little wiggle room. Um, so and it, it's helped astronomically in people being able to lease up quickly. Is, I mean, if we're, if we're talking to you as a landlord, and beforehand the rent was $350 off, it wasn't a conversation. If it's $20 off, I think we could have a conversation. Who did you say um, HUD relies on for their, for their data? I'm not positive, but I think it's the American Community Survey. It's a, a federal um, a data pool, essentially, yeah. Oh, it's the census, so. It's followed up. It's the follow-up to the census, basically. It's annual. Yeah, actually, my household got it this year, oh, okay. and so we filled it out. We were very excited. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, we're nerds. Um, but it asks you, like, how many people are living in the household, what your income is, what your rent is every month, what your estimated utilities are. It gets a lot more granular than the mm -hmm. census. It collects a lot of, like, financial information from you, so you get some sense of, like, how much households are making and what they're paying in rent. So is this from people who actually complete the census? No, the, the Census Bureau sends out a random survey uh, to a group of households, and hopefully they moved it because it used to be, they sent it out in the summer and you had to still be living in the same apartment in August. Yep. Uh, so they were missing a lot of students with that one. Yep. Okay, well that yeah. answers my question because, you know, I'm guessing that a lot of the really low income people who have so many other pressures about living every day and paying for rent and paying for groceries and stuff, I, I seriously doubt that they take the time to fill out a census form. Well, also you would miss you know, like ghost tenants who don't want to report to the federal government that there oh. are more people living in the place than the landlord approved. And oh, yeah. okay. I also thought it was so, interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, they sent, it was like a mailer that I almost, I threw away the first one actually because I didn't recognize that it was like a census thing. Um, you have the option to fill it online or like they send you this huge packet, you fill it out and there's like a, po a return postage thing so you don't have to pay anything to send it back. Um, but they were actually pretty we missed it at first and then they sent us the second one that says you will you are required to do this please do this <laughs> so like yeah, really if people are getting it hopefully they are actually filling it out but i agree that the problem is probably larger like in places like iowa city if you have people who are moving super frequently who are low income they're not going to be caught in that kind of you know more extensive survey yeah so is that I think that can skew the number that's arrived at to be the um, to be the limit, you know? Yeah, 
Well, in that instance, it would probably skew it up, which is not, in my opinion, what we see. I, I'm not, you know, the way they decide these numbers, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a mystery, isn't it? <laughs> I've tried everything to find out. I've, I've looked in lots of different places and talked to a lot of people. Yeah. Can I also ask, Rachel, just because you mentioned it, one of the things we used to do be able to do was uh, if there was a rate difference, we could get somebody moved in for the first month or even two months for a, lo for a lower rent. And then we were able to then, after that 60 day, just get that automatic increase. Yeah. And of course, I, we have been informed that, that that's not allowed anymore. Was that a HUD decision or was that just local decision for for streamlining things? That's a federal regulation. Um, I think that probably that changed at some point and it just got missed. Oh, okay. And uh, anytime you have a change in leadership in a in you find things. A work yeah, group, sure. you find things. Okay. And that's one of the things I found. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously, I, and it makes me wonder if it was part of that 90 to 110 where maybe there was more flexibility at some point where after 60 days you could push it up to that right. higher number. But, um, yeah, I just yeah, I was curious about that because it, it was a nice option that we used to have where we could get people in at, at, a, at a lower rent rate and then 30 days later have them well, pay so what the market was. But Nice for a landlord. And on the flip of that, what happens then is that that family is paying significantly more than 30% of their income to rent. That's where the difference comes from. We didn't pay more after that. The family would pay more, which is why HUD says no. They say, you know rent and burden if we're having somebody pay 50, 60%. Yeah, see, and that's real scary when your landlord raises the rent by $100 a month and you have to try and make that work with the requirements of the housing choice voucher. And um, yeah. You but work. we can still on an annual basis Right, they can get additional HCV if if the if those numbers are redone with the 60-day notification. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah. You're like, wait. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yes. So, it, 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 if on your renewal your rent goes up, mm -hmm. your landlord does have to give 60 days to housing that right. the, that the rent is increased, and then they can readjust on an annual basis what your HCV portion is as well as your tenant portion. So right. in that case, yeah. the tenant doesn't eat the full increase. It is, yes. And, and, and luckily this last year, because of the new increases, most of our tenants didn't see an increase on their end at all. It was a lifesaver for me because I didn't know what I was gonna do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of people with our payment standard increase actually saw their amount go down. Go down. Yeah. yeah. So. I, think I wasn't going to say anything. Year. I thought it might be a mistake, and I didn't want to bring it to anyone's <laughs> attention. <laughs> it was not a mistake. <laughs> well, I think, I, as I said to you earlier, I, I got to meet uh, Amalia, who's one of your newer staff, and we've been working. Um, I, I think there's probably a handful of us that have worked with ICHA. I mean, for me, it's been 23 years. Um, and I, I'm impressed on a daily basis, whether it's Diana or Carrie or... Or uh, or Robin, um, they're all fantastic, and and um, yeah, I mean I think they do an incredible amount of work. There are times I don't know how they get any of it done, um, just because the the pure amount of 
paperwork involved is mind-boggling, that whole bureaucratic process. I, I mean, there is a reason why a lot of landlords do not want to participate. I mean, it is, it is a lot. <laughs> um, so, but luckily, I think, I think we're blessed in, in Iowa City, Johnson County, parts north of Washington, that, that we are lucky enough to have ICHBA because I, I know Jackson County, Missouri, where I worked before, it was not that, it, it was not this kind of streamlined process. Sure. Um, I have heard from friends up in Cedar Falls um, and Des Moines as well who do not have the I same kind of. I used to work of, at the Cedar Falls Housing Authority. I have this, and I've been told that, that, that <laughs> what we experience here is not the relationship that private landlords at least have with those provisional processing groups um, elsewhere. So I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming tonight for sure. So thank thanks. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's nice to hear. And certainly we're um, actively looking for ways to make the process easier. And, you know, even uh, when we when I came and spoke to your group, it was so helpful to hear you. Um, sometimes we don't know the things we don't know until we know them. And I got some feedback during that meeting that uh, I think for next summer during move-in season is going to make things a lot simpler for a lot of landlords. Stan might not like me as much for it. Yeah, exactly. It'll be fine. Uh, so I, I appreciate the feedback and we're looking at ways to make it easier, perhaps some technology doing online submissions of things like RFTAs. And it would be great at some point to not have to go back the day after a housing inspection to do another HCV inspection because the paperwork was missed by a day. It would be really great if somehow just the housing inspection could count as an HCV inspection. We just had that happen like three times in the last week where Adam was there one day and then Sue called us the next day to schedule the HCV. And I'm like, but Adam was just there. Yeah. And of course, but if they don't know it, they can't, right. they can't report it. But it would be nice to find a way to, merge, to those. merge those, especially if it could save ICHA some money for not having to pay for a second Pay, pay well, the I don't city pay people. for the first one. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's true. Um, no, well, though, we'll see what we can do. As the person who requested that you come tonight and speak to us, I want to tell you that I'm very thankful that you did, and I'm hoping commissioners got some information that they can use going forward as we make decisions on where, um, where funding should go to the various agencies that are helping people. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, can you talk briefly about when they'll see you next with admin plan changes and kind of what you're looking at moving forward with the housing authority? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, every housing authority, every public housing authority is um, has a document, an administrative plan that I think some of you have seen before. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. We see the travel plans. policy was part of our administrative plan, okay. so you would have seen a section of it if you were around for that process. And uh, this is one of those things that hasn't been fully updated in a while. HUD produces between 20 and 30 notices <coughs> of new uh, regulations or regulatory changes a year. So we needed a lot of updating that document. I've spent a lot of time in the last year updating that document. And uh, I think we're on the home stretch to getting it in front of you all to look at some of the changes. Cool. Um, I love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> including uh, consolidating some of those preference categories. If we have preference categories that we've never pulled a client from, it just seems like superfluous administrative work to have them. We could put them all together. 
um, just simplifying some things, clarifying some 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 of our internal policies to make things easier and simpler to support tenants in their housing and landlords in providing that housing. And um, I, I hope to have that administrative plan in front of you guys. This I'm a fall. policy nerd, by the way, so mm -hmm. I love policy. I'm a policy nerd, so I really love it. Um, so I can't wait. And I, <laughs> I welcome, serious. Um, when we're talking about the numbers on our wait list and what it looks like and how we should be prioritizing how we use these vouchers, I think that's a really important discussion we should be having about making sure we're putting vouchers in the hands of the people who need it the very most. Um, this, is, this is kind of just an adage in the, in the affordable housing world, but housing is healthcare. And the rate of death or serious disability due to homelessness is incredibly high. And so when we have finite resources, I really welcome the discussion about how we can use those resources most ethically to make sure people aren't experiencing those negative mental and physical health effects as a result. I think I, that's good. I just had another question pop in my head. I'm sorry. <laughs> she just did her. I know. I know. She did a great closing, and I was like, I completely forgot. I, the, the, oh. the the music was swelling. It was playing. Everything was great. <laughs> she didn't even need to get played off the stage. And now here comes Kyle. Do you ever see HUD developing a deposit program for HCV qualified households? Because we still see that as a primary hurdle and we also see i mean we, once again can you first explain what a deposit program is, is before you for security deposits uh, and what would that what would that look like well, like generally in, your, in iowa city it's a month's worth of rent i mean that's kind of the standard is in order to move in you have to come up with a month's worth of rent okay. for security deposit. so if you're saying would they develop a right right now it's housing does not provide any funds towards security deposits but that's but the city does have some programs for that at community they have one right um, so, which is yeah you didn't let me finish okay <laughs> so what i was going to say is we are lucky to be in iowa city because of the fact that shelter house uh veterans affairs um there's a handful of others right, right. do have deposit programs okay. but it does take that money from those pro from those organizations and locks it up and when those monies get returned they don't get returned back to shelter house they get returned back so i mean all the i mean the the, the monies and deposits that i see shelter house put together and in haycap that money flows in and never flows back to those organizations mm -hmm. you're right and it's unfortunate and i just am curious if if hud has ever had a even a, a, a what do you call them? A sample project anywhere they've tried, or if they've, they've ever done anything where those HUD funds would be used, and in some way any monies could then obviously it'd be way easier if it's a single source right. than to try to figure out well who put the money in the first place, who gets it back. Right. Well, that's to a different. I mean, that's a possibility too. But right, like I said, right now, I mean, you know, there's. It, it, and from from an I'm not an owner I'm just a property manager but you know a lot of like you mentioned people move there's probably 20 percent nah, and it's not that high it's probably 10 percent of deposits that 
that we literally have paper checks for, and I mean, I have a folder in my desk of paper checks, and after a year, those monies just revert to the owner. Because people do move, and especially in this situation, if there are people in housing or they moved and they think, oh, I'm not gonna get my deposit back, or I don't have to worry about it because I didn't pay it, right. because it came from Shelter House or Haycap, they just kind of forget about it. And obviously my clients sure don't mind getting that money a year later, right. but it is a lot of times tax fund, CDBG funds, home funds that have flowed into shelter, flowed into Haycap through programs we're funding of the 2.5 million, because I did read the CAPER report, 2.5 million that, that we are helping fund, that it is, it's, so I'm just curious if you've ever had that conversation, if it's had that, you've had that conversation sure. at a regional or national level or? I've, I've been having that conversation my entire career and I've worked in affordable housing for 18 years in one way or another. Um, and 18 years in, I don't know, Kyle. Okay. Um, hypothetically, we could use our administrative funding for deposits that's also how we pay staff. Right. And so that's a, a, dangerous, yeah. a dangerous area to pull money from. I think that HUD is getting closer to realizing this. They're certainly looking at programming that partners PHAs, housing authorities with COC partners like Shelter House or HACAP. Um, a lot more um, the last five, six, seven years have demonstrated that greatly with the number of new vouchers we've received in partnership with Shelter House or the coordinated entry process. So, you know, never say never. And I don't know, you know, it's the same, it's the same question, um, HUD Vash voucher. I know from my previous position that you, you've taken a lot of HUD Vash vouchers in your units, um, which are your vouchers just for veterans experiencing homelessness. And instead of funding a deposit through HUD Vash, right? the federal government created SSVF, which is what HACAP uses to house veterans. So, I don't know, they know. Why, good, why? Good information, like I said, I just wasn't even sure if that would be. This, uh, you probably explored this before, but um, with the shelter, or with the security deposit programs that Shelter House and our community has, um, why can't there be any kind of caveat um, to return the money to that's a, yeah. I, I will say the state law trumps anything you want to make. Okay, so law, there's 562A says deposits held get returned to the responsible party of the lease. And the responsible party of the lease is the okay. tenant. That answered it's the not question. Shelter house. Shelter house's agreement is only yep. for those first two months of rent and any deposits received, but that doesn't make them a responsible party to believe. That's so the answer to the also question. Also programmatically, once you start talking about federal program income, uh, the staff time it would take, uh, we looked at it um, at my previous position in a rapid rehousing program at a different agency, and administratively we almost would have had to hire a full-time person to process the pro We would have spent more on the staff time so than we would have gotten where? back. And who paid what and what got paid. And well, that's exactly yeah. the issue with nonprofits trying to administer that kind of thing, too, is they don't have the staffing um, time and the capability to do anything like well, that. Okay. They're not an enforcement um, type of thing. So I know it's difficult for them. So, but that yeah, answered my really question, Kyle. It's really important in your agency to be able to have staff time to, for clients. Sure. Um, because I, your workers are, have a lot to do. 
all of our housing program assistants have approximately 300 clients. So yep, they are they are busy, and and that's um, we're pretty much pushed to the max of what our federal funding is for administrative time. Mm -hmm. We are we have a lower staff to client ratio than almost any other housing authority in Iowa. Seriously? Seriously. Wow. Um, if, if HUD gave us more money for more staff time, we would hire more staff. Wow. All right, you can wrap it up with the cool wrap-up. Well, no, I don't have well, she did it already. <laughs> I don't da, 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 have da, da, da. I'll just add the music. Um, okay, so you're all I'm well, sorry. Thanks again, Rachel. We're yeah. We, Thank you for having me. I'm going to leave you all to what looks like still is a lengthy meeting. So I apologize for monopolizing your time. I'll I'll just add that it was um, really great, and I'd like to see us. Um, I know we talked about having shelter house, but maybe some housing uh, agencies in because I, I want to talk about that gap ne next. I want to talk about how people are are making it. Um, from the time that they're on the waiting list until they get into housing. Um, how are they, we handling that four years, three or four years? Two to four years, let's let's say it was lower at some point, so. We shelter house a million dollars a year to yeah. build more stuff, that's how, yeah. that's how it's happening. But I know we did talk about that, so that would be an interesting um, presentation to follow up with in, in the future, if we could do that, I'd like that. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Feel free to say hi in the housing authority. If you <laughs> I mean, yeah, are you burning this afterwards? Or no? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you. Our uh, next agenda item, number five, aid to agency subcommittee updates and preliminary discussion of possible changes to the legacy aid to agencies process. Uh, this is simply just an opportunity for a discussion amongst all of us regarding possible changes to the legacy aid to agencies process. Uh, Commissioner Reedus, would you be able to lead this discussion? Absolutely. Um, so uh, there's um, some materials. Hopefully everybody's read them. Um, tried to bring you up to date as was requested by Commissioner Dennis um, last meeting in terms of um, minutes and such. And, and since our last commission meeting, um, we held a meeting with uh, agency impact council agencies. Um, so this is comprises um, agencies um, that would receive um, money from the aid agency process with the city and, and possibly some agencies that didn't. And, and there were um, a number of areas um, that um, we discussed, we'd sent out the information to the, the agencies ahead of time so that they were prepared with the information that they wanted to give us and the feedback. And I, and I do think it wasn't as lively as a discussion. I think that's what surprised us all. Um, um, but I think the information that we got back was, in my opinion, about enough for us to digest and be able to work on. And um, one of the areas, of course, is the uh, size of the application. Um, and although I haven't worked on it in the past couple of weeks, I've been doing something else. Um, I am working on reducing, making some modifications to the application that, that um, I'll first present to the subcommittee and then bring um, forward to the council. 
uh, commission. Not huge modifications because uh, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, we do have an application process. Some of the information is good. Some of it we can move that it doesn't isn't part of the active application. But the but the those people, such as the commissioners who are reading the applications and making the decisions, can still get the information, but not a, a, as a part of the active a application. Um, there was some uh, feedback on scoring, um, which I think uh, we can address more through some education because I think it was a misunderstanding of what that scoring, um, how to interpret it and how to make changes as an agency on your application because of the scoring. Um, some feedback I thought that was really good on the um, outcomes. Um, that is kind of a point of mine. I think that's one of the bigger things that I want to change with the application um, content. One of the other things that we talked about also, though, was um, uh, taking a look at the review um, of the application. And um, uh, we want some feedback from the commission on um, having an internal working review group um, for the applications rather than having all of the commissioners um, reviewing them as we've done in the past. Um, the review would be um, still working with the city staff with, because I think that their um, first review and analysis and subsequent recommendation of scoring is very helpful, at least it is for me. Um, and we'd have somebody from the city council, which I think would hopefully be good. Maybe we wouldn't have some go-arounds <laughs> who are not happy with our recommendations. And then we would have some commissioners um, sit on it also. The um, point of that, then we would uh, take those, um, once the review team has reviewed all the applications and scored them and recommended funding, that would come to the commission at which point we would have discussion and then the commission would resume uh, making a final recommendation to the city council for funding. So that's where we are right now and we'd like some feedback. Did I get everything in there, Brianna and um, Erica, that I think I did? So like some feedback from the commission on that. Yes, that's a good question. Um, it wouldn't entail uh, the home monies, um, any of the public housing um, kinds of projects, just the aid agencies, which is, um, and it's just a two-year, it's a two-year process right now, so it would be every other year we would set up this group, internal working group. Well, you know, I'm going to say that I don't like that idea. And I wasn't in the discussions on all of that. Um, and we can talk about that. 
No, I think you should talk about it now. I don't think you should call me and talk about it. I think it's it's a good thing to talk about here okay. at the commission meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't have any way of finding out when the meeting was. Um, I don't have a computer right now, and I've had health issues that have prevented me for the most part. I I've been homebound for for a while, um, off and on because of my health issues, and. Um, you know, honestly, that kind of went by the wayside for me. But um, I think a big thing for me is just the the lack of communication that I'm able to get through some sort of means. That would be helpful. You're not getting the meeting notices? I think you are. Are you not? How? On the computer. Yeah, I don't have one right now. Oh, you didn't communicate that to me. Yeah, I have. N no, I, I, no, July, I'm sorry. I, I did. I, I, you know, I didn't get an alternative way for you. I think we, at the last commission meeting, were you here in July? Yes. We had the date of the meeting. Okay. And I guess I'm going to throw this out. If I wasn't able to get on my computer at home, I'd probably contact the staff and come in and see the staff or something and try and get on. But um, but the meeting was, it doesn't really matter. This is, there's been no decision made. The decision is being discussed right here. So mm -hmm. um, whether or not you can, um, keep, you don't like, you, your preference is to keep the whole commission doing the scoring is that what i'm hearing and, and let me tell you why and it's just kind of how i see things um and i will admit that i'm not real good at getting my things turned in i mean i'm not going to hide that fact but i think that as a commission we come here um with um the expectation that we're going to have these things to do and um I'm not so sure that once everything has gone through this other smaller committee, that once it comes back to the commission, that one, there's not going to be enough time for the commission to really digest it and make any make any suggestions and have anything changed with that and what that process might look like with the whole group um, of the subcommittee. And, and secondly, is that um, to me, it feels like it's kind of like the commission as a whole would be rubber stamping something. So um, I guess a couple of things. Um, I do know that not every commissioner, well, there, I, I do know that, that not every commissioner gets their scores in on time, which has been problematic. Mm -hmm. And I also know either through inability and I'm not making judgment, inability to provide those scores or being new on the group, uh, not everybody's getting scores in, but everybody's getting the information to read. I, I'm gonna ask a question. Um, uh, Karen, at the, Karen, at the last scoring session, I think you were brand new and so you chose not to score, correct? Yes. Okay, but you still had access to read them. Okay, so that wouldn't change. So right now, the, you would still have access to everything. Um, it wouldn't be any different 
if you're not, if you're scoring, you're not scoring, you still have access to everything and you can be a part of the discussion. You're still a part of the commission and listening to the questions. There's only a couple of commissioners that are coming up with questions for the um, agencies, but everybody has an opportunity to listen to the questions and to hear the responses from the agencies. So I guess I don't, I'm in favor of it because I think it will, it brings the conversation down to a smaller group. There is a little bit more expertise, but there's also some non-expertise also. Um, the commission can decide how many people they want on that smaller group. I would think a couple, three at the most. Um, and, you know, it, it would simply mean not everybody has to be a part of it. So if you don't have time to get your scores in, not a big deal because all you really have to do is you have to be able to, you have to still can read the application and you can weigh in on the discussion. You can be a vital part of that discussion. And if you don't like the re review group's recommendation for scoring, that's where you enter in, you know, your opinion. So, so that's, that's just my response. So I do know that though, um, a lot of scores are late or not submitted. I, uh, go ahead, Kate, I was going to ask. Sorry, I, I guess I just had a quick clarification. Um, this this new process wouldn't be dictating the scoring in its entirety. You would be giving the entire commission recommendations, and then every one of the commissioners would still have the opportunity to formally vote on it. Yes. The smaller working group would do the work of reading the applications, coming up with questions first, getting the inform additional information that we need, and then reading the applications, scoring the applications, and then submitting that information to the commission so that the commission is making the final recommendation. So it's adding that step in there. It's really not so much so different than what happened this last time if you think that all commissioners weren't able to provide scores, a smaller group really provided it. And then the other thing is that you'd have the opportunity to be a, the commission be a part of is, is the question and answer session that's, that's, you know, can provide us more information. Um, uh, so it, it's not a lot different. It means that you won't have to score the application basically. Okay. Oh, it is on. Um, yeah, I, 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 I fall on the Carroll side of this without a doubt. Um, and like you said, it, it really, it's what we've been doing already. I mean, already uh, the, the small group of people who are comfortable with the information make the score. But my, my issue is any time, I mean, as volunteers on commission, the, the, the purpose of the commission is to have multiple voices and multiple thought processes and multiple inputs, primarily from people who may not have, you know, the 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 knowledge of the of how the sausage is made. I, I think by limiting that, by limiting and saying, well, you know, these two or three are gonna be the ones that, that do the work and and create the questions, I think you're taking away the opportunity for that 
bright light question from out of left field. I think you're taking away that opportunity during that process for someone who is brand new to it to say, hey, has anybody ever asked this? What, or even somebody that just doesn't know the process. I think a lot of times I get more education out of people asking questions I didn't think to ask because I don't know what that organization is. Um, you know, I, and, and I guess I'm of the opinion, and, and no offense to Eric and Brianna, I know that us being a pain in the butt on getting our scores to you makes your life difficult. I cannot promise I won't continue my long-standing tradition of waiting to the last minute. I will always try to do better, somewhat. Um, but I, I just think, in the end, the purpose of a commission like this is to have as many voices and eyes on a subject as we can. And I like the idea of a working group, but I also think, I, I just don't think when it comes to us, I mean, if, if only half of a score, then only half of a score. I, I just don't know in the end that that's that bad a thing. Um, I, I wanna take the, uh, so I, I know that I'm only gonna speak for me. I know that I'm not the only commissioner. Um, but it's a little frustrating to me when things are presented the night of the meeting or the day of the meeting that I don't have a time to review. And when you submit your scores, I'm reviewing those. And so it's, if you do not submit those until the day of, I don't have time to go through that information. So it's not just really staff, but it's, it's getting that scores is helpful, I think, to the other people on the commission also. So. Um, I disagree with you at all. Yes. And, I, and I've said a hundred times, I know, I know that I am part I, maybe of the problem. <laughs> I get it. I, I just, I, I think, I just think. I'm going to get your cell phone number and I'm going to start bugging you to get your scores in on time. Both of them do a pretty good job of it. Um, and, and see, and I will say I am the exact opposite, which is I am absolutely the guy that when I know that today's meeting, I set aside three hours of my afternoon. So today is the day I just look over everything. I don't even look at this agenda or look at anything until I know that I have dedicated. So, so I get it. I, and I know that that's just not a possibility for everybody. And I, I, yeah. I, I did better last time than the previous one. I'm getting incrementally better. But I just, I really think it's important for everybody to have a voice because I think that's in general why everybody is giving up three years to be here. I, that's I, yeah. That's just you know, where I guess where I come from. Rather than taking things away from commissioners that they, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe we can look for ways to help get everybody's scores in and everybody's participation. So rather than just changing the whole thing, let's look for ways to improve what we've got, and and help all the commissioners feel like they've volunteered for something meaningful and that they're somehow contributing something meaningful in their own way. Um, on the other stuff, I, I don't hate the idea of a city council liaison being involved in some way, whether that is just being in the room on score discussion night. I don't know that they should be part of the discussion. I don't know. I mean, that, that's something obviously I think we can work out. I, I like the idea if only because 
when staff goes to present it, they at least have one person already there who has a general knowledge and understanding outside of just the admin talk with Jeff or, you know, what, I don't know what you guys do before meetings, to be honest with you, but, you know, but to have the council, to have at least one other person that can be up there and say, hey, I was in that room when, when staff and commission had this discussion, it absolutely makes sense where they're coming from on why this decision was made. I, I do think that that's a bonus. I don't know how that would work. I don't know. I agree with you on that. And I think you made a valid point in terms of the council member being here and, and, and absorbing everything that's gone into stuff. But I, I, rather, I don't, I don't, that's not, I, we haven't really discussed that, like adding another element to, we, we're just, I think we're just discussing this, the smaller review group at this point. I mean, yeah. Because I did read it. Well, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I read. I, I, um, I it's, I think we're just um, talking about developing. I mean, to tell you, they could nix the whole idea too. They, they, this hasn't been um, presented to them at all, I don't believe. So we're just getting feedback and we'll take it back to, um, for discussion with the subcommittee um, at this point, so. But yeah, I, think I, don't, I think your notes are valid absolutely on, I mean, 400 pages on, on, on how thick that process is. There's gotta be a daunting. way to streamline it. Um, I think the only thing that, that caught me off guard was the smaller group. And for some reason, like I said, I, it just, it doesn't hit me right for what I feel like our purpose is right. as a group. But I get, I get why. Yeah, I guess I was just going to ask James and Karen if you have anything or want to, or just want to say, no, I don't have anything. <laughs> well, I, I think it's really super valid and you like as a new member to watch the process and yeah. you know get get a sense of what's going on because you know i came in in the middle of it uh, and well I, not even at the middle but at the very tail end of it yeah. so like the first meeting was like the question yes. and the answer night wasn't it yeah. Yeah, like, oh. i well <laughs> i was that even question and answer or was that the one before it because because it was supposed to be the question and answer but i had covid oh yeah yeah, yeah. James, anything? Have you you've not sat through? A... I have not. Okay. Um, oh. So I've been. Just wait. Uh, <laughs> um, so I've been part of organizations where we've sort of done, done a similar thing to this. Of there are smaller working groups um, that sort of deal with the more granular issues, and then they bring recommendations to the larger um, body. Um, you know, I I mean. I'm a nerd, and so I was looking forward to the scoring personally. Um, and, and maybe if it's part of a smaller group, that, that just means I like angle for a spot in the smaller group or something like that. Um, yep. But you know, it, it, it's it's kind of I. This is one issue where I'm going to teeter on the fence and see both sides of. You know, I'm I'm inclined to say this is one of the things that like. When I was looking at the different commissions, I saw like, oh, they help score and determine recommendations for funding to agencies. I'm like, that sounds like a really cool thing. That sounds like a really cool thing I would want to be a part of. That sounds like a really cool activity that I would want to, you know, be able to contribute with. Um, no. <laughs> if you're in this room, you do not have a good idea of cool. <laughs> it is, James. It, you know, it's it's a. It's a fun process, but it is, it can get complicated. Right. And, um, and 
and I will say I th I think it the there's added complication because of the application itself and so joint funding uh, um, <laughs> the you know how you can you love something but if you love something you can also hate something like a spouse or something like that <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's there's portions that that they love they absolutely one of the first questions that do you want to split it up should we all should each entity Iowa City United Way Johns County Coralville should we all have our separate no no don't do that we like the one application but then as you get into the questions the one application is what's creating most of the problems like like for me one of the huge issues I have on the application is that the outcomes oftentimes don't even match what we're funding for. So if I'm funding for food, why are you giving me outcomes that people are feeling better after a crisis call? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, how can I possibly measure how much good we did with the money we gave you for food if this? But the question was answered. Why did they give me outcomes for this? Because they asked for they're required to give outcomes on that to another of the funding entities and they're getting money for 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 mental health yeah so with four different funding sources they could be asking four different things and their outcomes are going to be some of them are going to be relevant to us at iowa city and some of them aren't but i think there's a way that's the biggest thing i think that i want to fix on the application and I think if we can fix some parts of the application it, and staff can, staff are unfortunately gonna have to do the job on the scoring, you know, fixing the scoring, changing the scoring. I think that's gonna make a huge difference. At least that's what I hope, so. Um, um, I will say the other thing, this was post, um, I think, a discussion with Nikki Ross, who is with Table to Table and kind of the person that's the head of the ag the agencies that are getting input on the, the discussion is we discovered that the the so they do four quarterly reports in addition if they if they're awarded funding <coughs> and the quarterly reports are only two questions smaller than the application <laughs> so, so in essence we're doing the application every quarter five they're doing them four times a year and i think that's the other thing that we can reduce to is is you know when you're talking about the bureaucracy and the paperwork involved my, the immediate thing that came to my head is what are we requiring of these agencies especially when you're you're feeding people they're coming in for a plate of food and you know we're making you fill out 54 pages a year on on evaluations and quarterly reports there's got to be a way we can reduce that so um anyway can can I ask, the yeah. only other two questions I had reading through it is, I feel like I'm missing a page. Mm -hmm. After the Jamboard, it says the 710 notes meeting, but it starts with the number three. It says three period goals, and I'm like, did I miss one and two? I thought that also, but I think the notes that were written must have been associated with the Jamboard. I think they must have been uh, related, okay. but it is confusing. I, and I didn't take no, any, you I know, I just didn't take something. any of the notes and I didn't look at that detail because <laughs> I'm just reading the content of it. So. The, the other thing that popped out, a lot of this was in the weed stuff. I mean, uh -huh. A lot of it was yeah. like the funding stuff and what programs were being used. And, and, and but the one thing I, that did kick onto me was, uh, I think it's Delita. 
Mm -hmm. Del uh, big brothers, big sisters, right? Is it Delilah? Delilah? Something. Yes, I, can't I remember, know what you're talking about. She did make a comment, and I think it's in the AIC notes, about one thing that is hard for them is we have the question and answer meeting, and then the next meeting we have the discussion, and they sit back there and sometimes hear us talk about things that are wrong. Because whether we've misunderstood it or or they or that or we've taken something the wrong way or a number has been being, being misrepresented and, and they feel like there's no chance to respond after that in a useful way and my only thought was is there a way to include a almost like we do at the beginning where we take input from would there ever be a way for us to do it without it getting bogged down of us to allow post-conversation, like at the end of the meeting, not at the meeting we vote on, but that one where we finally do the numbers, and then, okay, next meeting, we're gonna vote on it. Is there a way at the end of that meeting to maybe give any of them that have sat through it all and wanna speak up any chance to clarify anything that we've said? Or does that seem like too much? Do you mean in the meeting where the funding decisions are being made, or are you yeah. talking about the Q&A? No. The, the funding decision ones. It sounded like from what they're saying is they, they have the Q&A, and, you know, and then the next meeting we kind of do the funding decision. Mm -hmm. But during our conversations, Delita commented that, that a lot of times they sit back there and hear us making decisions based on information that they feel is incorrect. So, uh, can I, I just didn't know if there was a way This is something I've given a lot this. of thought okay. to also, and I've shared with Brianna that next time I am going to score the applications, even if it's just a run-through score, and come up with questions. Because I'm one of the people that supply questions. I read through the application five or six times throughout the whole process. I read through them quickly, moan and groan about something, and then they read through it again and ask questions. And then they come and they answer the questions. Then I sit down to score, and I've got just as many questions, questions that yeah. I haven't. So. So I, what I said I was going to do is I'm going to start, I'm going to do a run through score in the beginning and say, so I can get more of the questions. But something that Kyle said uh, gave me some thought that um, if they're in, in hearing what we're discussing and feeling that we've got something wrong, maybe not having them stand up because we could literally be here a long, long time. But send us information, like I feel like the commission misunderstood this and, and these are the questions asked, these are the answers given, but this is, you know, I, I'd like to give this information also that yeah, even if we some, could possibly read something. I heard Kyle say something, something. incredibly stupid during his comments. Yeah. He is so wrong. Here's why he's wrong. Yeah. 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 I mean, anyone can come make a public comment, too. I think the frustration from the agencies that I've heard, at least, is they feel like the funding decisions are being made with that information. So I think what you were saying, Becky, is really important to just take advantage of that Q&A because it's such a good opportunity to clear up kind of those misconceptions. But it yeah. is a lot to read, and it's hard to do all of that by the time that rolls around. So, But I guess the question is, can we, can we invite them during when they're listening to us discuss the scores? Is it too late? Because we've got at least another meeting yeah. where we have to give Double final scores. Yeah. Yep. Why can't in that time period, if they feel that we didn't get some information right, they, they submit 
something to the commission that goes into the public record, comes into our agenda and, and you know, we can discuss that at the final meeting where we're recommending scores. I mean, they can do that anytime. They can provide public comment or communication to the commission at any time. And they can also, when we make our recommendation to council, that's another opportunity for agencies to come and say, hey, this is what happened with my agency and I feel it's unfair and I feel like we should get a bump or whatever okay. they feel. That's so, their opportunity as it currently exists. So maybe we need to better communicate that. And then maybe, yeah. like I said, it was, that it was, was the one thing that popped yeah. out that I, a lot of it I was reading, I was like, yeah, okay, okay. But that was the one I was like, I absolutely get it. Yeah. I mean, I do because yeah. the way the process works is because we do have the Q&A, then that next month we have the, re I mean, we had that really deep discussion here. Yeah. But if any of us have made assumptions, either based off of a QRA or based off of that application, that then we're making those decisions, I'm sure it drives them crazy out there. Like, I, I it would kill me if I'm just like, no, like, no, but <laughs> yeah, and, I, and that was my only curiosity is it, it, without, like you said, without us having two hours at the end of a meeting, letting them yeah. all have their yeah. really have them rehash what they've already told us to try to get us. Yeah, if there's some way for and maybe that is maybe it's just a matter of at the end of the meeting, Kayla being like, if there's if you've heard anything during tonight's meeting yeah. that you feel needs to be addressed, please, you know, put it in writing, get it to staff and they will get it out to us to make sure we can clarify it before final decisions are made. I mean, something like that would even be right. Yeah, I think um, another issue that came up uh, during the um, feedback was the scoring. And that was a curious one because um, the comment I'm going to um, kind of well, I'm not gonna, I'm just um, giving my interpretation of the comment is that by using a 100-point scale, if they get yeah. low, there's no way to dig out of it. And I think exactly opposite. If we changed it to like a score of 10, you'd either get a 1 or a 0 um, on a section, and there'd be no way. So, so we can either give a 0 or a 1, but we can't give an 8 if you were partially right. So I asked staff if the agencies get feedback for their score and I think it's available but I don't think we automatically send it out. I think we need to educate the agencies that on your score you can contact staff if you got a 57 you can find out exactly where you scored low. You might have scored high in some categories and low in others and staff can give you feedback in terms of how the commission um, rated that and that could also happen before the final decision is made, and again, if, if they feel that we've made a mistake in the scoring because of the information that we're using, they could give that information to us. So I think that's just educating them and making sure they understand that they can get that information um, you know, from staff, because you can give that to them, correct? We do occasionally have people call and they'll ask yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think someone from the emerging round contacted me and asked like what they could have done to improve their application or something like that yeah. so we can offer. Yeah. I would also say if they have questions about commission scores and we don't have the scores ahead of time, that, that's where the problem comes where they're not able to look at the scores and see how they're. Bam, that's well. right. You get them. <laughs> <laughs> we need those scores in on time. <laughs> I, I know want, you didn't. We do want agencies to be able to see how they're ranking and we use those scores when we do our you know, averages and that's how the money kind of gets funded typically. Yeah. So it is, it is important to have those on time. So what I'm hearing is that 
um, the majority of the commissioners don't want the uh, review, the, the smaller review group. Um, and I'm also hearing that some of the other problems that we're having that the agency have had difficulty with um, could be alleviated greatly by commissioners being diligent and getting their scores in on time. And I think that's important. Um, you know, if yeah, we want the job, on, we need to do it. Um, and that's just what I'll say. So. so you still have another meeting of this group, though? At least one or two. So what, what's going to happen now is I'm redoing the application. I think there's going to be some issues that I'm going to shove to a parking lot for future discussion. And one of those is um, funding priorities. Um, no secret to the staff, I've said this before, everybody is a high priority, so uh, it, it, and not every, every issue is a high priority, and I, I do think we need to um, figure out how to better do, how to do a better job on that, but that's not something that, um, you know, we're going to deal with in the commission. I think what you can expect to see out of the commission is going to be a revised application, revised scoring, probably revised um, uh, quarterly report. And, um, you know, we'll go from there and, you know, maybe we do this again next year or something. So, because it's been so much fun this year. So, <laughs> any other questions on any of the feedback that anybody read? I, um, something just because it keyed in, uh -huh. there was a discussion on one of those pages about someone who brought up units of service or like yes. how we determine. Dalanita actually. So. Was it her yeah. again? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I will say, last year when we did scores and my scores, there were a handful of them that when I got in here, I was really surprised that people had scored higher. And part of it was because it was, well, they do a lot, but they were only helping two families. And so on that whole, like, how many families are they helping? Like, I had scored them, like, a 10 out of 100. And so those were some of those where they, like, I mean, they got 95s across the board, except for, like, these little areas where they were just, I was like, well, compared to these other places that are serving 300 families, like, and it would be nice to be able to say, well, are they serving those two families once a year? Is it just getting them assistance when they move in? Or is this an ongoing assistance where for like a disability or, uh, you know, uh, working with ARC where, you know, ARC's dealing with those families. Yes, they're only helping two families, but they're spending 40 hours a week with those two families versus, well, we're helping 300 families just once a year at a furniture drive. It would be nice to have some way to determine not just how many families are being served, but the time, the time or, I don't know how to explain it, because. No, we need to collect the data in a different yeah. way, Kyle. That's exactly it. So, same thing with a uh, food pantry. They might have 5,500 5, families registered, but of those 55 families, some use it more frequently right. than others and they might um, do 25,000 assists. Right. So we shouldn't ask how many people, we should be asking how many services yeah. they provided. So that's another area of getting the financials and the data, uh, making sure that we get accurate stuff. My other issue was that 
um, with the financials, there's a lot of confusion on whether you're asking for completed financials or projected budgets. And I know that why that exists, it's because of that third year we're asking for a projection. So for some organizations, they're giving us completed financials and others are giving us budgets. And so those don't make any sense. And so there's just a lot of problems with how the application is put together. But it's interesting. I called North Liberty and asked for their application. I don't know if I told you this, but their application is basically our application. They just took our application and down, you know, took and, and asked a few of the questions. Because <laughs> I was, at first I was wondering, do I need permission if I use something? I'm like, no, they're using ours. <laughs> so, um, but... Uh, and but I think I we do a better job in our home applications because you have a small budget portion in there than this populated thing that um, you almost need a master's degree in just how to fill out the populated uh, the the pre-populated form and stuff and so the form itself creates a lot of problems um, and but I do think the agencies are willing to do a little bit more work on some of the questions if if we maybe take the questions down from 25 to 15, and we can take some of that information and put it into more profile area where we can access it if we need it, but it's not a part of the active application. So I promise I am gonna come up with an application that I think is gonna be better, but I'm not redoing it all. There's still some problems, and I'll give staff a laundry list of these are the issues I think in the future we should still take a look at, so. Okay, thank you. Good discussion. Um, up next, agenda item number six, the Consolidated Annual Performance and Evaluation Report, the GAPER, and an update on city projects and programs. Uh, we'll have just a brief PowerPoint from staff and ultimately consider the approval of the document for a vote to uh, submit it to HUD. Um, I printed out some of the slides just in case it's hard to read the screen. You don't have to take them home with you or anything. I just want to say congratulations on the 1,375% that we had on a couple of things, which is just oh. to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, For newer commissioners, this is our, we call it our CAPER report. It's our annual report to HUD that says kind of what we've accomplished in the last fiscal year. The city's fiscal year runs from July to June. So this is looking at our FY23. The CAPER stands for the Consolidated Annual Performance and Evaluation Report. And this report is specifically looking at the CDBG and home funds. So the city has a lot of other local initiatives and um, many things going on, but this report is focused on the federal dollars and what we do with those funds. Uh, it's an assessment of the progress we've made towards achieving our goals and those goals and priorities are identified in city steps. Um, so the activities that you just approved in the annual action plan Next year around this time, we'll be looking at uh, the progress that agencies have made on those activities. So this is due to HUD within 90 days of the end of our fiscal year, which is coming up here at the end of September. Some things to know, like I said, keep in mind that the accomplishments in Appendix A are mostly looking at the federal activities. Um, the report, we can't really do a whole lot with a format. Uh, we use a federal database called IDIS, so some of the tables that might not be as user-friendly, we can't really do anything to edit them, so we try to supply that Appendix A 
um, of the whole CAPER report. Most people are interested in the tables that we put into that appendix, so definitely check that out if you haven't read that yet. Some of the impact from our federally funded dollars in the last fiscal year has been very busy. A lot of the agencies that we work with have completed quite a few projects. Things were kind of stalled after the pandemic. So we have seen completion of three neighborhood improvement projects and those have to be completed in low to moderate income areas of Iowa City. So Weatherby Park, um, we did new splash pad equipment there. We did some paving, I think also. Uh, that was at Weatherby Park as well. Seven low to, moderate, low to moderate income buyers were provided with down payment assistance. Nine units of affordable rental housing were acquired or constructed. And a piece of that also was funded uh, the 501 project with Shelter House. So we count the two home assisted units of housing, but as a greater part of that project, there was 36 units of permanent supportive housing provided to the community. Almost 2,000 people assisted with public service funding, 37 businesses provided with technical assistance, and that comes from our economic development portion of the funding. Two rental units and 19 owner-occupied units were rehabbed, and then 1,500 individuals were assisted through public facility improvements. Um, the photo on the first slide here, that was at Neighborhood Centers, their Pheasant Ridge Center, they repaved the parking lot there. That's a, they serve low to moderate income families to provide childcare. The photo yeah. on the very first slide. No, I mean address. Uh, Pheasant Ridge. It's like 2651 Pheasant Ridge. Okay. Right. That area. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they also have a Broadway Center. Um, and we, I think last year, they put a new roof on it with CDBG funds. Some other highlights, um, Kyle, here's your number, spent over $2.3 million of CDBG and home funds. That was the highest amount of spending in a single fiscal year in the last decade, so it's been very busy. A lot of the subrecipients we've been working with have been completing a lot of projects, so that's nice to see. Uh, the city passed its timeliness test in May. 100% of the CDBG CV funds were expended by the end of this year, and that includes funds from the state and from HUD directly. Like I said, construction and rehab activities were back in full swing. There was a lot of hiccups during the pandemic just with supply chains and finding people who could complete the work. And then also partnering with Green State Credit Union to um, develop that down payment assistance program that's been going really well. Just to highlight some of the projects here, the home in the top left corner, that was a acquisition project done by the Housing Fellowship. Uh, so that's a rental unit for low to moderate income renters. The photo on the right is Inside Out Reentry. They acquired that home and they're renting. They have four home assisted units for people um, returning to Iowa City, leaving incarceration. Um, they're actually in the process of lease up right now. Um, and then the last one on the bottom there was also a rental acquisition done by the Housing Fellowship. Some of the challenges, some of this feeds into what Rachel was saying, um, just staff capacity to administer all the existing programs and then also taking on new programs like HOMARP and the ARPA funds that have been flowing through the, through the city. Meeting HUD timeliness standards, that was a challenge, like I said, with those projects that had been delayed due to the pandemic. Training and compliance for new HUD requirements, um, it adds a lot of complexity to projects and it takes a lot of more of our time and also um, time of subrecipients and contractors to submit all the required paperwork that everybody knows and loves. 
um, developing and updating policies and procedures. Again, similar to what Rachel was saying, um, a lot of the new regulations that come through just require updates to all of our policies, so that takes staff time as well. Home ARP allocation plan delays. You saw an amendment, was that July, that we brought back to the group, just trying to get our plan <coughs> in order for HUD. Uh, that was like Erica said last time, a completely new program, so we're still learning about that. And then expansion of efforts to meet the needs of the community while providing the same level of services for existing programs. So there's just a lot going on right now. All right, so just a little update on programs that we administer as staff. So these are federal programs. Self-district program, we, the city purchases property, we rehab it, um, and we resell it as owner-occupied housing. Um, we focus on the South District along Taylor Drive and Davis Street. Um, we provide up to 25,000 in down payment assistance through the federal funds that you guys see. Um, we've sold five units to date. We have one property available at 2129 Taylor right now if you know anyone that's interested. Um, we are rehabbing um, some additional units on Sandusky that we're excited about because they're larger units. One's three bedrooms and one's four bedrooms. Um, and those will be ready in November. Um, when we rehab the properties, we focus on sustainability and affordability, um, but um, a lot of them have been gut rehabs, fully fully renovated. Um, some have solar panels and other sustainability updates. Um, and then all of our buyers have been under 50% of the area mean income. We currently own, um, let's see, seven additional duplexes in the in the neighborhood. We bought eight of them at the same time in 2021. Um, some of them are occupied, but when the tenants move out um, voluntarily, then we would move forward with rehabbing those and turning them into owner-occupied units. And we're also offering um, the tenants, if they're interested in homeownership, we're working with them for that. Um, our Green State Down Payment Assistance Program, um, it's now Green State and Hills, I guess I should call it, um, but we provide up to 15,000 for eligible home buyers buying in low income census tracts of Iowa City, which is a large portion of Iowa City. Um, we've had five closings for this program. Um, as I mentioned, we started working with Green State the first year and have expanded to working with Hills as well. Um, we also have a dedicated part-time staff member um, that works on this program, which has been really helpful. Um, so I feel that's going pretty well. Our neighborhood improvement program, we talked a little bit about that at the last meeting. Um, the curb ramp project is what we're doing for that. We get $75,000 annually as a set aside. That project is gonna start in the next two weeks, so that's moving forward. Um, CDBG and home rehab, we have a long-standing city-administered owner-occupied rehab program. We do a combination of grants and loans um, depending on the owner's financial situation. Um, we also can serve mobile homeowners in some situations. Um, assistance can be used for emergency repairs. We see roof replacement, um, furnace replacement, water heater repair. Um, we do accessibility improvements, aging in place, energy efficiency, exterior, and then comprehensive updates. And with this program, we serve about 20 households annually. What's that program called again? It's the owner occupied rehab program. Housing rehab is what we call it. Um, Economic development, we are currently using our CDBG economic development funds to provide assistance for nonprofits who provide technical assistance to low income and micro enterprises. Those are small businesses that are made up of five or fewer employees and one of those employees owns the business. So currently we are funding four C's to support in-home childcare providers. 
with a specific funding. Um, they serve immigrant refugee populations and they have a really good program that not only helps the low-income business owners, but they're also um, working to help the child care crisis in our community. So it's a good program for that. That's a great program. Um, and then um, here's some highlights of not necessarily funded through our CAPER or our federal programs, but local programs that we're also doing. 615,000 in general funds went to 21 agencies through eight agencies. Um, this excludes our CDBG public service funds, which is another 124,000. Um, this is important operational funding for agencies. It's flexible, they can use it for staffing. It's really important to help them leverage other funding that they receive um, to, as needed to accomplish their goals. GRIP is part of our housing rehab program. Um, it's kind of an extension of our federal funds, but owners can go up to 110% of the area median income and they can qualify for a low interest loan from $10,000 to $40,000 to update their home. We served seven homeowners in FY23 and it's another tool we use to help maintain the city's existing housing stock. Um, the security deposit program came up earlier. It's $70,000. Um, community administers the program. Funds come from the city's affordable housing fund. Um, they serve 77 households under 50% AMI um, in this past year. And then um, Healthy Homes, we've served 73 households. A large portion of that was um, radon mitigations efforts through Housing Fellowship. And then every year we give 700,000 to um, Housing Trust Fund of Johnson County to allocate out to agencies that are creating um, housing. And 200,000 of that is a, a low-income housing tax credit set aside. So that's another annual source of funding. And then um, we added a slide about the ARPA funding. Um, I won't go through each of these, but the city received $18 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds. We've got a lot of really good projects going on. Um, you can go through those and about 10 million um, has been allocated to date. Is the remaining ARPA funding available? It is, they kind of have it categorized on what they wanna spend it on, but we don't have specific projects set up yet. And, and that has been council determination who, as city, um, city staff, it doesn't come through us. Right, right. Um, next steps, looking at this plan, we would be asking for a recommendation for approval. It's due to HUD next week, so we would be submitting that by the deadline. HUD has 45 days to review the plan, and then they would send us our approval. So, do you so we can answer questions and you're asking for approval tonight but we can also answer questions if you have any off the top of your head minor follow-up question what was the address on taylor drive again 2129 2129 and that does not include the incentives that we offer okay i am <laughs> yeah so this is it's a duplex unit. I believe there's three bedrooms. Okay. His, I pulled up the neighbors. I, just, I guess I had a separate follow-up question um, about the down payment assistance programs that you do for yeah. the transition to home ownership. One, one, um, two, 
do we have any idea about is it not old enough to have a success rate metric to it yet or do we have any idea of like are people who were getting into home ownership falling into um, foreclosure or has there not been instances of that um, it's a pretty new program um, so it's all been in the past year that people have purchased their home so I think it's really too early to tell if that if we were to if someone had a foreclosure we would get notified because we have leads on the property um, but it's, I, I would say it's way too early to tell so far hopefully hopefully it doesn't happen at all <laughs> I was really excited to read about the South District program it sounds like there's an awful lot going on there it was, it was fun to read Again. Nothing. We're going to serve 55 people. Turns out we serve 485 people. That's 1,300 <laughs> percent. Hot diggity. Yeah, I, I move to approve the caper presence. Uh, the caper report is presented. Second. I. We had a recent appointment Tuesday, and then Michael resigned earlier today. So we will be back to having a vacancy. If you know anyone who might want to apply, tell them to apply online or to contact me. Um, we'll have a new commissioner. I haven't heard confirmation from them yet that they're um, ready to take this on, but I'll keep you posted on that. Um, other updates, let's see. The calendar, we were supposed to have Shelter House come in October and present on street outreach, and that's going to be moved to November at the request of Shelter House. So. Um, they'll be here to present on that and maybe they can touch on some of the topics you were mentioning earlier about that gap um, when people are on the waiting list they might have some insight on that topic as well uh, the only other thing I have then I'll turn it over to Erica is there's a flyer in the packet for the community police review board community forum on October 3rd if anyone's interested in participating in that um, in your packet you also had our Excuse me, our NDS annual report. Um, this is the 2022 report. It's not going to match your CAPER numbers if you're trying to match them up. It's not going to, it's not the same timeline. Um, but if you look through um, the report, at the very end, there's an appendix and it has all of our housing numbers. So every, every um, unit that we served in FY22 is going to be listed in there. So if you're wondering how we're spending our money, where's the affordable housing fund going, where are CDBG and home funds going? That's all detailed in there if you are interested in looking through. Great. Um, I have a question. So Mike, Michael was on the subcommittee. Um, so can we um, see if there's anybody interested um, in taking his place on the subcommittee? I don't know if Kieran or James might be. When is it? Well, we will probably only have a couple more meetings, but I just, or we don't need to add anybody, but I'm just offering that up if the commission, if anybody wants to take his place. So. I did want to mention, I think the next meeting is Monday, the 25th. Um, I think we need to reschedule that because Nikki's out of town for the whole month. She had a, she had an emergency. So I need, I've got an email out to her asking her. 
and she's kind of the coordinator of the agencies, so. No. For the overall commission, do we have somebody filling all the recommended roles? I want to say yes, because I think you serve in the property management spot. I'm pretty sure right now. Don't quote me on it, but I think so. Someone from community organization and someone from I believe so. Um, if we want another person on that subcommittee, I'd be happy to fill in for the last few meetings. Because as we've learned tonight, he You're all in. <laughs> Actually, I'm the minutia. He is ready to go. Um, yeah, when when you called yourself a nerd, I was just thinking you just might be the person for this group. So, um, yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I, I do I do work on. Um, I don't really have a I don't have a staff. It's just me. So, I just do the work on, um, you know, like pulling the questions together and and I'm working on the application but I'm glad to if you want to take a look at it get a newbie's perspective on it questions and things like that that'd be great yeah yeah Bria Erica is the NDS report printed or is it just electronic I have a copy if you want to take mine but it's black and white but it's, it's on the website we can print a copy if you'd like one well, I am interested in seeing about getting 20 or 30 copies. Like, actually, I didn't know if you guys were going to actually be printing them. We don't typically, but we, I can. Because we have a meeting. GICA has a meeting next Tuesday, and I mean, this is yeah. this would be fantastic. I, I mean, even if it's a matter, I, I mean, I can just take. You don't have a problem with me just taking this and printing it, no. and printing a whole bunch of copies or taking it to Technographics. Okay. I have a I have a question um, at the council meeting. They um, approved ADUs, which I think is um, alternative dwelling units. Is that what that stands for? Yep. Right. Accessory. Um, accessory. accessory. Okay. So this is like um, building a shed in the yard, or it could be right. <laughs> mother-in-law, mother-in-law spot out back. Yeah. Um, apartment. Yeah. I mean, I I've read. Um, some of the criticisms and of, of rushing and all of that. But the question that I have is how it will affect um, affordable housing in the future and wondering if, you know, somewhere down the line when staff is ready or whoever would speak to us about that, maybe we might get a presentation on that also. I, I didn't hear the first part of your question because you returned towards them. Oh, well, it wasn't really a question. I said I wasn't able to make either open house um, where they were um, presenting their plans, but I wish I had been able to. And I think you make a valid point on, you know, how might this affect affordable housing and are there any limitations or restrictions on who and how much rent to charge and is 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 it open for them um, using them as airbnbs or is it to make up you know the lack of 
housing already in Iowa City? Those kinds of questions. So I don't know if Kirk can come and answer those. Yeah, we can. I think we can. Only history will tell. Tiny villages is, you know, that's a question I have, and tiny houses and stuff like that. So yeah, we can talk to the planning staff and see Great. if they have any resources to provide, or if they'd be willing to come to a future meeting. It can be down the road, I imagine. They're in preliminary stages yet. At least that's what it seems like. So, um, but I am interested in hearing more down the road. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. In theory, yes. I mean, the thought was, oh, if you can be able to have a one bedroom or two bedroom or smaller location attached to a larger property that owner occupied. But the theory is yes. I mean, theoretically this cheaper, more affordable options are out there. Yeah, I don't dislike the project. I just have lots of questions about. I, I think we have a state, however, who has specifically told municipalities that they cannot put restrictions on short term rentals. I think what you're going to see is people doing ADUs and utilizing them. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, as a, as a homeowner with a, with a two, -third or two thirds of an acre lot sitting behind my house, absolutely the first thought I came up with, which was mm -hmm. there is zero reason why I should not put a little she shed or you know something out back, a little one bedroom, you know, one of those, what is it, 350 foot, you know, square foot, uh, tiny apartment and yeah it's tough I, I don't know how it's gonna look it's in general I approve of the concept I mean, it's just yeah it's right interesting to see right I was very sympathetic to I mean for a long time I've been very sympathetic to the idea of like in general we should allow more rentals and in general we should allow yeah. more like like because that's one of the key problems that is a general shortage of rentals yeah. um, <coughs> affordable rentals of affordable rentals I mean, Hawks Ridge and Lakeside and all those will tell you that they have rooms for you if you <laughs> if you if you if you need a if you need a one bedroom and a four bedroom for nine hundred dollars a month, they got it. No, I, I'm just going to say, and it might be an unpopular thing, but as a homeowner in a small neighborhood, it doesn't contribute to con community though. Having a lot of rentals that move in, move out. I mean, I lived there three years before anybody said hello because I live around renters who moved in and moved out. So there are problems with it too. Um, it's, uh, I, you know, prayed for and got my wish that the rental house would be owner occupied and it has been for the past um, seven years now, thank goodness. So um, I'm interested in, in I used to love Airbnbs too, by the way. <laughs> but now I don't anymore because I think they contribute to the problem. Um, I'm interested in, in seeing what the concept of uh, tiny houses, um, uh, you know, because I think that that can have a, a big impact on things that are important, like home ownership um, and and uh, affordable housing at the same time. So, so that's what I'm interested in hearing. So, and I have a shed out back already. So. <laughs> I need to go too. I need. I need to eat. May I have a motion to adjourn? Well, so we, moved. I didn't know if we no, were done. That's all. Agenda. We're good. Okay. We're done. I, I so move. Yeah. Second. I gotta go too. I haven't. All in favor, that. say aye. Aye. Any opposed?